Hey everybody, this is Joseph, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast. Each week, this show features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres, and we hope that they encourage you in your faith and work as you listen. This fall, we're preaching a 10-week series of sermons called When Religion Fails, and we're using Jesus' teachings and parables from the Gospel of Luke to reconsider what it means to truly follow Christ. Here's this week's sermon. Flowers fade, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say. I was four years old when an American president traveled to Berlin to the Brandenburg Gate, the iconic structure that stood as the symbolic center of the Berlin Wall, that 27-mile concrete border which walled in the entirety of the city known then as West Berlin, making this city a small island of American, British, and French forces in the chaotic sea of East Germany, a land where Soviet communism ruled. The Berlin Wall would come to be, become a symbol of the conflict in Europe between Western democracy and the rise of post-Nazi communism in nations like the former Soviet Union. Those interested in history here can certainly say a lot more about how the wall came to be built, about the many failed talks between the West and the Soviets, which eventually led to its construction. We could say more about the way the wall's nearly overnight appearance suddenly divided families, neighbors, church folk, friends. We might find it interesting to note how a simple chain link and barbed wire construction built in 1961 would, in 10 years, become an impenetrable wall of thick blocks of concrete with armed watchtowers and heavy weaponry at key checkpoints. We could say more about the rising tide of public opposition to the wall within both Berlins and the many ways internal politics in Germany and the, society and the Soviet Union made the wall into a hot-button issue in the 70s and early 80s. But for today, in light of today's sermon, I found myself remembering that notable clip of President Reagan in 1987 standing at the Brandenburg Gate as the television cameras broadcast his speech around the world, and he looked into the camera and spoke directly to the last leader of the Soviet Union whose empire was beginning to crumble around him, and right in the middle of the speech, he issued three imperative commands Three instructions, he said, General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. 
And two years later, as six-year-old Joey Novak watched in his first grade classroom at Doyle Ryder Elementary School, the first pickaxes were swung, and the graffiti effaced concrete blocks of the Berlin Wall began to be torn down, reuniting Berliners, reconciling neighbors, rekindling the flame of possibility and unity and peace. Come here to this gate. Open this gate. Tear down this wall. Today, we are continuing our fall sermon series. We started last week a series called When Religion Fails. And we're using the gospel text from the Gospel of Luke to stress test our religious tendencies. To see how Jesus might be showing us what true discipleship looks like and how it might run counter to the way that we tend to set up our institutional religious life. Today our gospel text offers to us a so-called parable, even though Luke himself doesn't use the word parable. It's a parable nonetheless, and one that is familiar to some of us, but maybe new to others. It's a story about an unnamed rich man who had every luxury you could want, and a poor man who had nothing except a body covered with sores, who laid outside the rich man's outer gate every day. In the text, you might have noticed the rich man has no name. He is not given any identity at all. He is only described as if to invite the listener to fill in the blanks with the identities of those who might fit their bill, themselves included. The poor man, however, is named. His name is Lazarus, and he is clearly destitute. The Greek text describes him as someone who is literally thrown down at the rich man's gate every day to beg for food scraps. The rich man is described as being clothed in the finest items from the latest Hermes fall winter series. Though in his day it was described as bleached white linens and purple dyed garments. Lazarus is clothed with nothing but sores, sores that even the wild dogs of the city would come and lick, adding to his torment and agony. The rich man feasts sumptuously every day, with one scholar suggesting that he daily prepared banquets sized for a hundred people. Banquets where, and I kid you not, large pieces of bread would have been used merely as napkins, items to wipe your face with and then throw in the garbage. Lazarus, however, longs for just a small piece of that napkin bread. He can't even imagine the vast quantities of meat and stew and roasted vegetables being fed to the animals of the estate after the banquet has ended. He just wants the scraps of bread being thrown away that aren't even being chewed. The contrast between these two is exquisite. It's made even more so by the realization that all that separates these two extreme paths through life is the outer gate of the, of the rich man's estate. There Lazarus lay every day in agony, and there the rich man's servants would presumably parade past bearing the wagons of food necessary to prepare the rich man's daily banquet feast. 
Well, eventually the rich man dies and receives a beautiful funeral service. The scripture says he is buried. His body is laid to rest with his ancestors. It's given a proper ending. Of Lazarus, however, Jesus only says that he dies. No burial service is mentioned. No family member is said to have come to collect the body to give him a final honor. The silence of Jesus about this suggests that Lazarus's impoverished, malnourished body was just left on the street, a cultural signal to all who would see it that this man was understood to have been cursed by God. But, presto changeo, it turns out that in this parable, the afterlife turns the tables on these two characters. Both characters enter the Greek version of the afterlife, a place called Hades, a place of shades and ghosts, a place where all the dead were said to go, but there seems to be different experiences one can have in this afterlife. Lazarus, who was licked by dogs in the street, is carried by the angels to the very heart of Jewish identity, to the side of Abraham himself. There he is at rest, there he is at peace, receiving all the comforts he did not receive in his life. The rich man, however, is experiencing torment and agony in the land of shadow. He peers across what seems to be a chasm and sees Lazarus at peace with Abraham, and he begins to beg Abraham to show him some mercy. But the rich man is so tainted by his former life of luxury and being served by what he considered to be lesser people that even in this afterlife of sorts, he sees Lazarus and begs Abraham to send Lazarus to him like a servant might have once come to put water on his tongue to sate his thirst. That the rich man seems to know Lazarus' name means that he knew who this man was. He knew him back when he just laid at his gate, but knowing the names of the poor and actively working to relieve their sufferings are two very different experiences. Alas, Abraham says, there's no crossing this chasm. The divide between you and Lazarus is now fixed. There is no bridging it. Well, wait, the rich man continues, just send Lazarus to my family. Make him into a messenger servant. I've got brothers, and they should be warned of what awaits them if they don't change their ways. Send Lazarus to them. But Abraham says, now wait a minute. They have Bibles. They can read them. They know the scriptures make it clear that helping the poor is the religious obligation of all who would seek to honor the Lord. They can read the law of Moses, Abraham says, places like Deuteronomy, where we read, since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. Deuteronomy 15. They can read the prophets, Abraham says. They can read prophet Amos, who said, Therefore, because you trample on the poor and take from them levies of grain, you've built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not live in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, and who push aside the needy in the gate. 
They can read prophet Isaiah, who said, Is not this the fast I choose, says the Lord, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own family? Let them open their Bibles, Abraham says, and start putting it into practice. No, Father Abraham, the man cries. They won't get it. The book is so old and ancient and hard to understand. They need a powerful sign. They need a dead man come back to life. Then they will believe. But Abraham's words close out the parable. No, if they will not listen to, Ab to Moses and the prophets, then they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, church, this is a parable. It's a story used to expand a deeper truth of what it means to follow Jesus, to recognize God's kingdom, to do the weightier matters of the law, the stuff that really matters according to Jesus. And because of this, you need to know that this parable is not some sort of architectural tour of the afterlife. The use of the word Hades in the text is not there, so we will be able to uh -huh, map out more about what life after death will really be like. The point of it here is really a foil to create the reversal of situations between the rich man and Lazarus. So we must tread carefully on matters of heaven and hell and chasms and torment. The point of the parable is more about the present living than it is about a future afterlife. In context, the parable here is given, delivered to a bunch of self-righteous, mostly wealthy senior pastors who were really upset at how Jesus was spending so much time hanging out with those who lay at the gates of their society, those who were commonly understood to be cursed by God. And in telling this parable at this moment, Jesus seems to suggest that it is precisely those individuals who are at the margins, who need intervention, assistance, and mercy, who are in the care and keeping of God. In the parable, in their earlier lives, the rich man and Lazarus are separated just by a gate. On the one side is opulence and wealth, on the other is pain and suffering. The gate, though, was permeable. It was able to be crossed. It was able to be opened. The rich man could have, on any day of the week, walked out his leftovers to Lazarus in the barest, most basic form of compassion and mercy. But he could have also propped open the gate and invited Lazarus to join him for one of his many banquets. But the gate for the rich man became a wall, an impassable barrier between him and the plight of the suffering. I wonder what our walls look like, the walls that keep us from aiding the needs of the poor who lay at our gates. I'm wondering what stones may have been laid in our walls. I can think of a few stones in my wall. I can think of the stone of fate, stone that says, I don't know why this person is poor and I'm mostly well off. It must just be the way of things in the world. The plight of the suffering is just the roll of the cosmic dice and we become more separate.
from our neighbors. Another stone might be cynicism, stones that say, well, I can't solve the problems of poverty or homelessness or physical suffering, so why even bother trying? I'm probably just making things worse. We want to help. We feel powerless to make meaningful changes because it feels too monumental or too great or too impossible, and so we stop trying, and the wall gets thicker and taller Stones of self-righteousness, perhaps. Stones that say, well, the poor are just poor because they're lazy and because they spend their money in the wrong ways. We justify our own socioeconomic position by how we handle our money, by how educated we ended up in our ability to have and hold jobs, and we start assuming that anyone who really wants it can do the same thing. Stones of scarcity are there, too. Stones that say, I don't have enough to fix anybody's problems. I'm barely making it on my own. The problem of poverty or homelessness is too large for me. All I have in my wallet is $5. I can't possibly do anything worthwhile. And the wall between us and the plight of the suffering becomes taller and thicker and less passable. Whatever your stones look like, if they're like my stones, they might look a lot like those. We start laying these stones over time, and soon that passable gate between us and the suffering in the world becomes impassable. It walls us off from their crises. It keeps them safe and tucked away, away from us, and keeps us away from them so we don't need to be bothered. But in this brief parable, Jesus steps to the microphone in front of the gate of his day, the wall of separation behind him in the camera, and speaks to the church, to us, and we see him say to you who seek peace in this life and the life to come, come to your gate. Open this gate. Tear down this wall. We are not called into this life to create impassable barriers between us and the suffering. We are called to throw open the gates and find some small way, however insignificant it might seem, to bend the considerable arc of our own material resources to provide just a small measure of relief to those who might be lying at our gates. Religion fails when it hides behind walls of its own opulence and self-righteous goodness. It fails when the poor at the gates die in the street and the church says nothing. Religion fails when it gives in to the cynicism or fatalism of our day, which assumes there's nothing to be done anymore. And the poor will just be poor and the rich will just be rich. C'est la vie. Religion fails when it stops asking how we might tangibly bring a measure of relief to those who suffer. It fails when we close our ears to the words of Scripture, which call us back to the very heart of God, a heart that breaks with compassion for those who are hungry and thirsty and naked and sick and friendless and in prison. Such a life is lived counter to the will of God in Scripture, and it leads to an isolated and tormented life, one separated from our neighbors. And one day, by an uncrossable chasm. The word of the Lord to the church today is clear. Let us go down to the gates that we've begun to build between us and the suffering church. Let's open up those gates. Let's tear down the walls that separate us from those 
who lay there. Let the First Presbyterian Church of Flint be a place whose people are those who seek first the kingdom of God, a kingdom who is arriving right now in the lives of the marginalized and suffering, a kingdom whose attention is transfixed upon the hungry and the sick and those in jail and those who find themselves needing a fix in a street alley. Let the First Presbyterian Church of Flint be a people who daily ask how we might each bring relief to one person. We might be open-hearted and open-handed in our generosity to just one person, that we might be willing to take the risk that comes from helping, not knowing if we're going to make a difference, but finding in time that the relationship we make with another God-loved human being makes all the difference. Church, come down to the gates today. Open up those gates. Church, tear down those walls. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to make you stand without blemish in the presence of his glory with rejoicing. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time and now and forever. Let the church say, Amen. Thanks for listening this week. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. You can learn more about us at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 10.30 a.m. to worship with us. We would love to welcome you and your family to worship. Have a great week.